Hebrews chapter 1. We just got into it. Last week we dealt with the first three verses talking about the fact that the superiority of Christ, right? He starts in verse 1 with God who after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and many ways in these last days has spoken to us through his son. Jesus is a far greater revelation of God than the Old Testament. He's far greater than the prophets. Jesus is all we need. And then he begins to tell us about who Jesus is, the fact that he is the, um, the heir of all things, that he is the creator of all things, that he is the radiance of the glory of God, just like the sunlight and sun rays that we hit are from the sun. So Jesus is that radiance of God's glory. He is the exact representation of his nature. He is the one who all, holds all things together with simply the word of his power, who Jesus is, and then what he's done. That he has made purification for our sins. And now he's seated at the right hand of God. Now, I, I was going to move on. And, and one of the things that sometimes, you know, it's just hard with the, the time frameworks that we have to, to, to dive as deep as sometimes as I want. And I know, bless your hearts. I mean, some of you, you're some of my favorite people. Because you're out there and you're going to come up to me after and just say, Steve, preach longer. Preach longer. And I love you for it, right? I just want you to know I appreciate it. But what you don't understand for every one of you, there's three people going, no, you preach long enough, right? I mean, and I was raised, my dad, who was a great communicator, always said, you know, I asked him once, why don't you preach longer? He says, man, because I want people to leave that back door. I want them to be thinking, man, I wish he had gone 10 minutes longer than, man, why didn't he stop 10 minutes sooner, right? So that's, so sometimes time constraints are just what they are. But as I was processing this week, I just wanted to go back and take one more time to go just a hair deeper into this idea of the word purification. Why? Because it's kind of a unique word, right? So he says he's the uh, exact radiance of his, or he's the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he had made purification. Now let me ask you, as a Christian, been in Christian circles, Christian lingo, isn't the word purification a little odd? I mean, it's not one we use much, right? We use the term salvation, when he had provided salvation, when he had purchased our redemption, when he had made sacrifice, right? Those are words. When he had provided forgiveness, those are the words we use. We hardly ever use the word purification. So why, in the midst of this beautiful expression of how Jesus is far greater, does he use the word purification? What does the word mean? Well, what it means is to make something that is unholy, holy. It, it means something that's unclean, clean. In fact, when you look at how the words used in the New Testament, so this Greek word is used seven times, and it typically is either translated purification or it's translated cleansed. Um, a couple places where you'd probably be familiar with it. Jesus heals the leper, right? Leper, right? you know, stay away, right? They live outside. But when you were healed of leprosy, you were to go to the priest 
he was to declare you clean, and then you gave a sacrifice uh, for your purification. The other time we see it is when Jesus had been born. Remember, for Jewish ladies, uh, for 40 days after they give birth to a male, they are considered unclean. But then after the 40 days, they give a sacrifice, and it is for their cleansing. And that's where this word is being used. But, so, so we get that. But it's an, more of an Old Testament word. And what's interesting is... It's hard sometimes to take New Testament words, which New Testament is primarily written in Greek, and the Old Testament is primarily written in Hebrew, and go, okay, so how does that translate to the Old Testament? But I was thinking about this this week. So um, between 300 B.C. and 150, so 150 to 200 years before Jesus, because there were people were losing the Hebrew language, they actually translated the Old Testament Hebrew into Greek. It's called the Septuagint, right? So it's language, the Greek language around the time of Christ. And so you can kind of see how they would have understood some of the Old Testament terms. And what's interesting when you do that kind of a search on this Greek word, you, it's used like 19 times in the Old Testament, but one of the things where it's very prominent is with the Day of Atonement. Now, are you familiar with the Day of Atonement? For those of you that aren't, let me tell you just a little bit about it. So, when Moses took the children of Israel out of Egypt, and remember they went down to Sinai, God gave them all the prescriptions to how they were to worship him and the sacrifices they were to bring. And he prescribed the tabernacle, which would ultimately become the uh, kind of the prototype for the temple. And in the tabernacle, there was a place where there was sacrifice. And then there was a, there was a in, inside, because the sacrifice was actually done outside. But inside, the first room was called the holy place. And that's the place where the priest would go every day. There was the altar of incense, where they would burn incense before the Lord. There's a golden candelabra. There was the bread, reminding them that, you know, God would pr provided for that. So there's a, the... Uh, uh, bread of the, of the covenant is there. And then there's a veil. Remember we talked about this a few weeks ago. There's a veil. And behind that's another room. This room is called the Holy of Holies. Or the most holy place. This is where the Ark of the Covenant is. Where the mercy seat there on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. Where God's presence literally dwelt under the cherubim. And past the veil into the Holy of Holies, nobody could go except the high priest. And he could only go one day a year, which was the Day of Atonement, to make sacrifice. And what he would do is there would, first of all, they would sacrifice a bull. And he would take the blood of that bull and he would go into the holy place, right? One of the things he would do is he would anoint the, um, the altar there of incense. In fact, we read about that in Exodus 30, 10. He says, Aaron shall make atonement on its horns. This is the altar of incense once a year. He shall make atonement for it with the blood of the, now the word purification is in our language now translated sin offering, right? 
to cleanse it. It's a sin offering. It's a purification. It's the same Greek word that's being used here. Then he would go into the Holy of Holies and he would take the blood of this bull and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat. Now the bull's blood was the sacrifice for his sins and the sins of his family. Then he would go out and they would sacrifice a goat. And if you remember on the Day of Atonement, there were actually two goats, right? One was called the scapegoat right, where the sins were placed, it was led out into the wilderness, the other goat was taken, the blood was captured, and now the high priest would take that into the holy of holies and sprinkle it on the mercy seat for the sins of the people. In fact, in Leviticus, it's talking about that, he says, for on this day that atonement shall be made to, here's this Greek word, cleanse you, and you will be, and here it is again, clean from all your sins before the Lord. Purification. It has to do with cleansing. It has to do with wiping our sins away, of making us who are unholy, holy. So to fast forward a little bit, uh, keep your finger here, right? What I want you to do is turn a couple chapters. I don't want to get too far ahead of us, but Hebrews chapter 9, to understand where he's going And what he means here by purification and why he uses that, where he's going here is that Jesus is the literal ultimate fulfillment. Just like he's the ultimate revelation, he is the ultimate sacrifice for our purification. So look at verse 6 of Hebrews 9. Now when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, the holy place, performing the divine worship. But into the second, which is the Holy of Holies, only the high priest enters once a year and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing. Now skip down to verse 11. But when Christ appeared... As a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not as his creation. So let's stop there for a second. So this is not the temple in Jerusalem. This was not the tabernacle that was up in Shiloh. Jesus actually went into the very presence of God in heaven, right? The temple in which where God sits in heaven. And there he offers this the sacrifice, verse 12, not with the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once and for all, having obtained an eternal redemption. For at the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of heifers, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself Without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant. Jeremiah 31, a new covenant I will make. Their sins I will remember no more. That's what he's talking about. Since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. 
Jesus is the literal fulfillment, the purification that our sins have been covered. They have been made clean. You and I have been made clean. And the heart of what I want you to get today, when it says that when he had made purification, that this is all about Jesus. When he had made purification, not when you had made purification, not when I had made purification, but when he had made purification. This is all about Jesus. He's the one who is the heir of all things. He's the one who has created all things. He is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation. It's all about Jesus. It's not about you and me. And what an important reminder that we understand that salvation is in Jesus alone. It's not Jesus plus me adding to my purification. No, Jesus alone. Jesus is all you need. When he had made purification. By the way, can I remind you that this is a finished work. That's all past tense. When he had made. Done. Because guess what? He is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Done. The work is done. Purification has been made. You and I who are in Jesus have been cleansed. We who were unholy have been made holy. And here's the thing. We must stand rooted, grounded, and living in this truth. That it is Jesus, not me. And this is where we struggle so much. In fact, when you look at the book of Hebrews, why is it written? I think the simple answers of that is what you see is you see Jewish people who grew up under the law have heard of Jesus, of what he did on the cross. They gladly accept him. And now they begin this journey of faith. The problem is the journey of faith is hard. Because what do I have to measure it against? What do I have? And, you know, and, I, and I still fall and I still fail. And how does that all work? And so we like to feel like you know, I need something to kind of measure to. And so it's like, well, you know, I've trusted in Jesus, but I'm, I'm still going to keep the, the law. I'm still going to keep the festivals. I'm going to still keep the sacrifices. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, no, Jesus is all you need. He made purification. He, you don't have anything to add to it. And so you, you think about today, so often when I talk to people, hey, do you know for certain you're going to heaven? Well, I think so. Well, what, what would you say to God? Well, you know, I believe in him and, and, yeah, and I, I tried to live a good life, and I tried to be a good person, and I went to church, and, and I took communion, and I, I was baptized, and I gave money. Folks, can I just be honest with you today? If you're sitting here today and thinking that you have right standing before God because of Jesus and anything, you're deceived. Like I would argue that you don't really know Jesus because you're not trusting in Jesus. You're trusting in the and. To trust in Jesus means that I trust in him alone. That he is the sacrifice.
do you know where I see this also play out? Is in the lives of believers. And we understand, right? Nothing I could do to get to heaven, right? I know, I know I'm a sinner. So Jesus, I know it's his sacrifice alone. But this walk of faith is hard. I've dropped the ball. Mess up. Man, am I really saved? Satan whispers in my ear, could God really love me with that? What happens is we start looking to our own good works here. And one of two things happens. Either number one, I, I come to this point where I start looking at the, you know, the sins that I don't really have struggles with, right? Like I don't steal and I don't cheat. I don't smoke. I don't chew. Go out with the girls who do, right? Those are not my vices, so I begin to get very prideful in those things and very condemning and judgmental of others. Almost sounds like a Pharisee, doesn't it? And the problem is I don't understand grace. That I've been saved by grace. I'm kept by grace. And I understand I'm saved by grace, but somehow I think I, I, I'm kind of keeping myself. Here's the other side. The second one is they're more honest right? They, they, they realize, man, I'm a failure. I, 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 they realize I don't measure up. And, and now there's this sense of guilt of, you know, could God love me? Could I really be his child? Do, do, do I really belong to him? Am, am I really saved? And they begin to doubt. They begin to live in this sense of, of guilt and, and shame. And we somehow have this idea that once somebody gets saved, that Satan goes, oh, man, I lost them. I'm done with them. No, you get saved. He just changes his tactics. He just wants you never to experience the freedom in Christ. Folks, when you and I understand this is all grace, right? I didn't deserve it the day I accepted it. I don't deserve it today. But he has purified me, right? It's It's done. It is only in grace that I am able to now fully follow Jesus out of that heart of, of God, I just love you. I, I, want, I want to love you with my whole heart, mind, and soul. Because if not, it's always about performance. It's always about trying to measure up. It's only when I understand I don't have to do any of that. Now I follow you simply because I want to love you with my heart and soul. That's where freedom is found. That's where freedom is found. And I know some of you are pushing back. You're saying, but oh, man, does that just mean then you can just, you know, get saved and then live however you want, right? Do all your sins. If all your sins have, you know, have already been forgiven and it has nothing to do with that, you just live any way you want. And I would just yell out, God forbid, no. Never. He saved us to make us holy. When we walk in sin, we don't walk in alignment with who he has made us to be. In fact, when you get into this book, this is, I think, when you see these warning passages, there are consequences for that. But the reality is that I still belong to him. That's why whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Because it's the work of Christ. Now, here's the thing. We, we got to live in this truth. And I, 
I'm pushing for time here. And this is the key. How do we live in the truth? Not to the enemy's lies, because here's what the enemy does, right? He, he gets you right up to the line, right? Right up to the line. I've got a line up here. And he tempts and he tempts and he makes it look so good. And the moment I step across and all of a sudden he goes, well, look at you. And you call yourself a Christian. You think, how could God possibly love you? Now there's all this guilt and how, you know, and I, and I do and I feel the guilt and the shame. And then you begin all these doubts and these concerns. How do I live in the truth that in Jesus he's all I need? That I've been saved by grace, I'm kept by grace. And I got thinking this week, God brought to mind uh, an old hymn. We, we sing it around here some. You know, hymns were kind of written for this very purpose. They were written at a time where most people were literate. They couldn't read the Bible, so they couldn't understand. So it was like, how do we teach them good truths they can hang them on to? So we put them in a song and teach them the song, and they could sing it during the day. And I, I thought of this song. It's called Before the Throne of God. And we're going to sing it here in a minute, but I, I, wanted, I wanted to dissect it for you. And I wanted, I wanted to ring through your heart, not just today, but tomorrow and this week. And I want you to download it right from iTunes. I want you to listen to it. I want you to understand that Jesus is all you need. So this is how it goes. Before the throne of God above. Now, again, this is God's very presence, Right? The creator of all the universe that says, I have a strong and perfect plea. Doesn't mean that I'm innocent. Doesn't mean that I'm not guilty. But I have a strong, it will stand the test of time. It is the perfect plea. Oh, by the way, he is my great high priest who is my plea. It's Jesus, whose name is love. Whoever lives and pleads for me. He's the one. In fact, that, that, that's literally Romans 8. Right, Romans 8 says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Well, who's the judge of the world, right? Isn't it Jesus? Jesus said all judgment is given to me. It was Jesus, who, by the way, died for me, and oh, by the way, rose from the dead for me, who even today is at the right hand of God interceding for me. There is no condemnation. And then it goes, my name is graven on his hands. And you think of engraving, and you think of, you know, the, the, the putting in it, of, of those nails in his hands. And my name is engraved in his hands because that scar is there because of me. My name is written on his heart as that spear is stuck up his side. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands... He's the God of the universe, that there's no tongue, no lie of Satan, no accusation of the enemy that can bid me thence depart. Second verse goes like this. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, that's what he does. Man, as a Christian, he points these things out. He, he wants us to feel defeated and to live in the shame and the guilt of a sin. What does it say? Upwards. You see, we get looking at ourselves. We get looking at others. We're trying to measure, make ourselves all better. He said, no, no, I look at Jesus. 
upwards I look and see him there, the one who made an end to my sin. I have been purified. My sins have been washed away, taken as far away as the east is from the west. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. Now, is that not an awesome line? My sinful soul is counted free. For God the just, oh yeah, he didn't lower his standard for you. He's still just. But he is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That's how Jesus sees us. The Father sees us in Christ, covered with his blood, in the righteousness of Jesus. The third verse goes like this. Behold him there, the risen lamb. I can't help but think of Revelation 5, right? Who could open the book? There's a lamb that had been slain. Behold him there, the risen lamb. By the way, my spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am. He's not going to change his mind, folks. We belong to him, the king of glory and the king of grace. Aren't you thankful for grace? Aren't you thankful for grace? He is the king of grace. One with himself, I cannot die. When I came to faith in Jesus, but I was united in Christ. Think Colossians 3.3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Nothing can separate you. Nothing can separate you. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high. With Christ my Savior and my God. Folk, I want you to understand purification. It means we who were unholy through the sacrifice of Jesus have been made holy. It's once and for all. It's eternal redemption. And we get it by grace. And we hold it because of grace. And it is that grace and walking and standing in that grace that allows us to live a life purely, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, and all our mind.